Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and Fortage Messenger for Monday, February 26, 2024. I'm your reader, Mary Francis, and you are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. Um, the Mason City Globe Gazette does not have much in the way of local stories today. On the front page, we have a giant international story, War in Middle East, Ceasefire in the Works, and then the other story is local on the front page, and we'll start there. Company allegedly hired kids to clean packing plants. At least nine children worked at Seaboard Triumph Foods in Sioux City, authorities say. U.S. authorities have accused another sanitation company of illegally hiring at least two dozen children to clean dangerous meat processing facilities, the latest example of illegal child labor that officials say is increasingly common. The Labor Department asked a federal judge for an injunction to halt the employment of minors by Tennessee-based Fayette Janitorial Service LLC, saying it believes at least four children were still working at one Iowa slaughterhouse as of December 12th. U.S. law prohibits companies from employing people younger than 18 to work in meat processing plants because of the hazards involved. The Labor Department alleges that Fayette had, has used underaged workers in hazardous conditions where animals are killed and rendered. The agency says children sanitize dangerous equipment, including head splitters, jaw pullers, and meat bandsaws. The department's legal filing details the severe injuries that one 14-year-old sustained while cleaning the drumstick packing line belt at a plant in Virginia. Records show Fayette learned the worker was underage after the child was injured and continued to employ the minor anyway, according to an investigator. A spokesperson for Fayette told the Associated Press in an email that the company is fully cooperating with the investigation and has made changes to policies to improve its hiring. That includes hiring a new CEO and using third-party legal representation for vetting, according to the company. Quote, Fayette has always had a zero-tolerance policy for minor labor in the workforce, and we've continued to work diligently to ensure that something like this cannot occur, the statement said. The latest findings add to a growing list of violations, including the fatal mangling of a 16-year-old working at a Mississippi poultry plant, the death of a 16-year-old after an accident at a sawmill in Wisconsin, and last year's report of more than 100 children illegally employed by Packers Sanitation Services, Inc., or PSSI, across 13 meatpacking plants. PSSI paid over $1.5 million in civil penalties. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack sent a letter to the 18 largest meat and poultry producers last year to highlight the issue as part of the administration's effort to crack down on child labor violations more broadly. The Labor Department's latest statistics indicate the number of children being employed illegally in the U.S. has increased 88 percent since 2019. The cleaning company works in about 30 states and employs more than 600 workers, according to the department, and the investigation is ongoing. The initial findings identified 15 underage Fayette employees at a Purdue Farms plant in Acomic, Virginia, and at least nine at Seaboard Triumph Foods in Sioux City, Iowa. Seaboard Triumph Foods 
said in a statement that it is terminating its contract with Fayette because of the allegations. A spokesperson for Purdue Farms said in an email that the company terminated its contract with Fayette before the filing, but declined to specify further. And now we'll go over to the Sunday uh, Mason City Globe Gazette, because that was the only local story in the Monday paper. This one is titled, House GOP Offers Rural Development Bills. Iowa House Republicans have introduced two bills designed to spur economic development in rural Iowa. House Study Bill 715 directs $300,000 from a state fund used to support skilled worker training and job creation efforts in the state to the Iowa Economic Development Authority for the cost of certifying project-ready industrial sites in rural Iowa. The money would be spent on what House Republicans have coined freedom sites in counties with a population of less than 50,000. The money would be used on two certified sites per congressional district each year, up to $30,000 each. Quote, this bill would help unlock the potential of rural Iowa, said House Ways and Means Chairman Representative Bobby Kaufman, Republican of Wilton, in a statement. The statement continues, House Republicans want to make sure that we're making economic development a priority everywhere in the state and not just near the big cities. This investment in our Certified Sites program builds on last year's mega sites legislation to ensure we are boosting up and building brighter futures for rural Iowa. House Study Bill 722 creates a new rural development tax credit designed to encourage investment in new or expanding businesses in Iowa's 88 smallest counties. It allows up to $27 million in tax credits for investors in projects expected to generate $45 million in economic activity. Quote, by incentivizing investors to put their money into projects in rural Iowa, we can create more jobs, lift up local economies, and build back vibrant communities, said Bill Manager Representative Derek Wolf, a Republican of Hudson. Legislation designed to restrict ticket buyers from using online services and programs to purchase large amounts of event tickets, often with the goal of reselling them for a profit, passed unanimously out of the Iowa Senate. Senate File 2322 would prevent anyone from using a computer program or bot and multiple other online tools and tricks to buy more than eight tickets at a time. During brief debate in the Senate, lawmakers made multiple popular music references. Senator Liz Bennett, a Democrat of Cedar Rapids, said messing with Iowa ticket buyers creates, quote, bad blood and urged swift approval, both in reference to pop superstar Taylor Swift and one of her famous songs. Senator Jeff Reichman, Republican of Montrose, recalled that when he was young, all I wanted was my MTV. The bill now is eligible for consideration in the Iowa House. On another issue, Iowans would be able to request the ability to choose their own blood donor for transfusions and other medical procedures under legislation approved along party lines in the Iowa Senate. Democrats opposed the bill, Senate File 2369, and suggested that it was brought because some people who are against vaccinations want to be able to avoid receiving blood from people who have been vaccinated. Quote, this bill is a bill based on ignorance. It's here because people believe that vaccinations and an individual's blood 
will be carried over to them and somehow affect their health, said Senator Bill Dotzler, a Democrat of Waterloo, during the floor debate. It's ridiculous, he said. Senator Jeff Edler, Republican of State Center, said the bill was not designed to deal with vaccines, but simply to give Iowans the choice to have a known blood donor. Quote, it's becoming increasingly difficult for patients to receive a known donor blood donation, Edler said. This is allowing Iowans the right to choose what they want for a transfusion. Only Republicans voted for and only Democrats voted against the bill, which is now eligible for consideration in the Iowa House. In another uh, issue, legislation requiring insurance companies to provide coverage for diagnostic and supplemental breast examinations, the same as mammogram screening, unanimously passed the Iowa House. Quote, this is something that's going to help a lot of Iowans, said Representative Tracy Ellert, a Democrat of Cedar Rapids, and it's something that could have helped me, she said. Ellert was diagnosed with breast cancer last year. Quote, I was one of the individuals that required the advanced testing, which isn't always covered by insurance and sometimes isn't recommended due to the cost, she said. When I was diagnosed with breast cancer last session, it was an MRI that actually caught it. It was not my mammogram and ultrasound that I get on a regular basis and had even gotten just a couple months prior to the MRI. Women in the United States have a one in eight chance to develop breast cancer, according to the American Cancer Society. There are so many people who have breast cancer scares that need workups that are not currently covered by insurance, said Representative Megan Sraz, ah, boy. S-R-I-N-I-V-A-S. Um, she's a physician and Democrat from Des Moines. And because of that, they delay their care, delay being diagnosed, and often done, end up with a far more advanced rate of cancer than if we had been able to get them the care they need when they needed it. The bill now is eligible for consideration in the Iowa Senate. Another issue from the Hill, the Iowa Department of Natural Resources would be directed to create recommendations to improve the accessibility of Iowa state parks and public recreation areas under a bill that House lawmakers passed unanimously on Wednesday. The bill, House File 2364, would direct the department to research accessibility for people with disabilities at state parks. It would also need to provide information online and in brochures about the opportunities for people with disabilities in state parks. Representative Adam Zapner, a Democrat from Iowa City, who proposed the bill, said it would improve access to the outdoors for Iowans with disabilities. Quote, I think every Iowan deserves that basic access to the outdoors, and this bill is going to help Iowans with disabilities be able to reach the outdoors and have those experiences in our great parks and natural lands, Zapner said. Reynolds taps Cedar Rapids magistrate to fill judicial vacancy. Governor Kim Reynolds announced on Wednesday that she has appointed Cedar Rapids attorney and judicial magistrate Mark Fisher to serve as a district judge. Fisher, a partner at Howe's law firm PC, fills a vacancy created after the retirement of 6th Judicial District Judge Sean McPartland. The 6th Judicial District includes Benton, Iowa, Johnson, Jones, Lynn, and Tama counties. Fisher received his undergraduate degree from Arizona State University and his law degree from the University of Iowa, 
according to the governor's office. And now I'm going to go back to the Saturday, February 24th edition uh, for local news. And on the front page, we have a picture of a gross lead pipe um, opened up and dripping stuff. And the headline is, Investigative Special Report Where the Pipes Lead. Will Poorer Families Be Left Behind in Race to Replace Lead Pipes in the Next Decade? Lead pipes have been banned since the 1980s but millions of residents in Illinois and across the Midwest remain exposed to lead from water lines. This is a Lee Enterprises news investigation, and the prospects for an equitable fix for low-income families could be dimming. Lead water lines hold the potential to poison people who drink water from them. Infants and children are particularly at risk for significant health problems tied to lead exposure because their bodies absorb the neurotoxin more easily. Prolonged exposure can lead to developmental delays, lowered IQs, and brain damage. And then it shows a, a, a graphic that's a map of the United States. And it shows uh, in yellow, 1% to 4.5% of percentage of total lines that have lead. So Iowa's in the yellow, and Illinois is in the red, which is 11.35 to 12.6% percent. On November 30th, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency proposed long-awaited new drinking water regulations that include a 10-year deadline for water systems to eliminate lead lines, and they have exemptions for bigger cities like Chicago. A major concern voiced by environmental advocates, however, is how part of the cost will fall on homeowners because the EPA did not outright ban utility companies from charging residents for the remediation. It's a move that will disproportionately harm low-income households, renters, and people of color, said Suzanne Novak, who is a senior attorney with the nonprofit law firm Earth Justice. If we don't prohibit charging a customer, we may very well end up with a two-tiered system, where wealthier communities, which are disproportionately white, will have more of their lead service lines replaced than in other low-income and black and brown communities, she said. Since high-profile lead contamination crises in places like Flint, Michigan, there's been a major push in recent years to replace an estimated 9.2 million lead pipes in the U.S. Under the Biden administration, the EPA has provided nearly $800 million in grants to assist utilities that serve disadvantaged communities. But environmental justice advocates say, even with an unprecedented boost from the Biden administration, there is not enough federal or state money to address a glaring problem. What if homeowners cannot afford to replace the lead pipes that are considered part of their private property? Across the U.S., many utilities argue that they are only financially responsible for the lead line that goes from the water main to the curb, and that from the curb to the home is the responsibility of homeowners. So many public and private utilities are ultimately telling residents to pay up or will pass over your house. In some cases, utilities are covered by the are covering the costs by issuing bonds, raising customer rates across the board, or reimbursing customers up to a certain amount once the replacement is complete. 
In other cases, utilities have conducted partials in which only the public half of the lead service line is replaced, leaving the private side intact and the potential for water contamination in play. The EPA has recently proposed banning the common practice of partial replacements, citing dangerous spikes in lead levels post-removal. And then there's a list of tips. What if I have lead pipes? One, contact your water utility or a licensed plumber to find out if you have lead service lines, a pipe that runs from the water main or curb to the home's internal plumbing. Fixtures in your home may also contain lead. The likelihood of lead pipes increases if your house was built before 1986. Number two, you can find out if you had lead service lines on your own. Use a key or a coin to gently scratch the pipe. If your pipe is soft, easily scratched, and a magnet doesn't stick to it, then it may be made of lead. Number three, connect with your local utility to see if they have a lead service line replacement program in the works. Some municipalities offer free replacements or rebates to help offset the costs, but in many cases, households are financially responsible for replacing the private side of the lead pipe. Number four, if you're pregnant or have a child in the home or you're concerned about blood lead levels, you should consult with a family doctor or a pediatrician. Lead can impact fetal development or cause behavior learning problems in small children. While increasingly rare, lead exposure can be fatal or result in hospitalization. Your local, state, or county health department can also provide additional information. And five, you can reduce exposure by flushing your water before consuming, regularly cleaning your faucet's screen, using a water filter certified to remove lead, and using cold water for drinking, cooking, and making babying for formula. Boiling water does not remove lead from the water. Here's a local story from Saturday's Globe Gazette. $500,000 winner from New Hampton recalls leaving ticket behind. This is Dateline Clive. A New Hampton man said he felt calm Tuesday as he claimed a $500,000 lottery prize. But he admits that that was definitely not the case when he first realized that he had won. I was shaking pretty good then, I think, said Kevin Fry, as he claimed the eighth of 14 top prizes in the $500,000 cash scratch game. Fry, in fact, was so thrown off by winning big that he left behind his winning ticket. I was so excited and flustered that I left the ticket inside of the Casey's store, and I went out to the car and started calling everybody, calling my wife at first and everybody else, he said. When one of his adult children asked him to send a text of the winning ticket, it hit him. And then I realized, I don't have the ticket, it's in the store, Fry said. Fortunately, I was still in the parking lot of the Casey store. I ran back inside and asked the employee for the ticket. She was so flustered that she forgot to give it to me the first time. So we finally got it on the right page. Fry, age 64, is a longtime New Hampton pastor, and he purchased his winning ticket at the Casey's in New Hampton. So why did his son want to see a picture of the winning ticket? My kids know that I'll tell some pretty good tales sometimes, he said with a laugh. So the oldest son, who lives down in Des Moines, said that it's not true until he sees a picture of the ticket. And so we took care of that, and he was pretty excited, too. Fry said he and his wife, Marion, have talked about moving to the Des Moines area when they retire. 
to be closer to family, and his lottery win will help with that, along with long-term plans and investments. This is going to help a lot. This is exciting in that way, too, he said. It will be fun to be able to share some of it with some of our family and some of the charities that we support and have supported for a long time. He said he was able to lead church services Sunday as if nothing was out of the ordinary. They told me I did a nice job on the sermon, so I said, well, I guess there was something at work in the middle of all that, he said. And back to the front page of the uh, Saturday paper. U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley, Republican of Iowa, returned to Cerro Gordo County on Thursday for a listening post with students and constituents at the North Iowa Area Community College, part of his yearly tour of Iowa's 99 counties. Between stops at Osage and Garner High School, Iowa's senior senator toured NIAC's facilities, including the Applied Robotics Lab. The lab recently received two National Science Foundation grants to purchase state-of-the-art robotic equipment for students to gain knowledge and experience necessary for success in the workplace as industrial technicians. First elected to the Senate in 1980, Grassley, age 90, was most recently elected to an eighth term in 2022, making him both the oldest and longest-serving member of the Senate. This is a treat for me, said NIAC's outgoing President Stephen Schultz. I've been fortunate to get him to know him a little better when my daughter played volleyball at UNI. He hardly missed a Saturday night game when I was in town. He's truly one of the strongest Iowans we've experienced in our history. It's a pleasure to have you here. I'm going to let you folks set the agenda, Grassley said, before taking questions from the crowd of about 30. You might want to ask what's getting done in Washington or maybe what's not getting done. Schultz commended Grassley for his co-sponsorship of the Tax-Free Pell Grant Act, which Grassley said aims to curb a loophole in the tax code that disproportionately affects tuition costs at low-cost community colleges like NIAC. While Pell Grants used for tuition and fees are tax-free, any portion used to cover other education costs like living expenses is taxed. In addition, the American Opportunity Tax Credit, passed in 2015, provides students a credit of up to $2,500 for tuition and course materials. The bill, which was endorsed by the American Association of Community Colleges and many other educational organizations, would make Pell Grants fully tax-free and no longer require students to subtract Pell Grants from expenses for which the AOTC can be claimed. The legislation is co-sponsored by Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, a Democrat of Rhode Island, and similar legislation also enjoys bipartisan support in the U.S. House. Mason City Police Chief Jeff Brinkley extended a thank you to Grassley, quote, for the work you've done to support the police and the armed forces. I have two children on my own. They're both going to school on ROTC scholarships. And I think as we look for quality leaders for tomorrow college and financial aid options, were major decision makers for our kids in terms of how to get through college. So I thank you for your continued support of that and of us, he said. Lindsay Dallyrimple, director of the Auditorium Leadership Series at NIAC, also thanked Grassley for his office's attempts to intervene last month when a performance from the Peking Acrobats was canceled due to problems issuing the visiting performer's travel documents. 
We didn't have a lot of time to respond, she said, and unfortunately we had to cancel the performance. But you and your office moved very quickly to try to make that happen for us, and we appreciate the effort, Dalrymple said. We call this casework, Grassley explained. We try to cut the red tape for you. He later recalled that in his early days as a congressman, a fellow legislator told him to forget about this place out here, Washington, D.C., and take care of your constituents. If a little old lady comes in and wants her toenails clipped, clip them. It's an election year, said, asked one concerned voter. What can we expect? Do we need to build a bunker? Do we need to get generators? No, I don't think so, answered Grassley. People ought to, in America, have confidence in their elections. If you don't see it as credible, it really weakens our systems and our society of government, and it has an impact on the economy. Grassley said he was concerned about the increased amount of calls into his office by AI programs posing as constituents and spreading disinformation. I would hope that at least my party would wake up to the fact that we'd better adopt a Democrat practice that's been very successful for them of having early voting. Most Republicans only want to vote on Election Day, but they ought to think about voting as early as they can and getting it out of the way. I hope we get that message out fast, he said. Would you share that message in Des Moines, please? Another voter chimed in, referring to the recent shortening of both absentee voting and Election Day windows in Iowa. Grassley was then asked by a NIAC student whether or not he was concerned about rumors regarding President Joe Biden's mental acuity and fitness for office, considering his age, which at 81 makes him the oldest person to serve in the office. Quote, I was getting on an elevator, oddly enough, with a journalist, a print reporter, so he asked me the same question you just asked me. And I said, how do you expect a guy that's 90 years old to complain about somebody that's 81 years old? Grassley's most recent face-to-face -face with meeting with Biden took place more than two years ago. His judgment is, quote, there was nothing that caused me to question his physical or mental well-being, but I'm aware of everything I see on television about it. I'm not going to pile on him, even though I don't want him to be president again, he said. Grassley was released from the hospital last month after being treated for an unspecified infection and returned to his duties after a successful antibiotic treatment. After the public event concluded, Grassley sat down and took a few questions from the Globe Gazette. And here are some of those questions and the answers uh, lightly edited for clarity. First question, uh, you helped champion the creation of the AEAs in 1974. Do you agree with the assessment of Governor Reynolds that the AEAs have had little meaningful, meaningful oversight or accountability through the years? Grassley said, first of all, the quote you gave me, it would be impossible for me to respond to that because there's just no way that I could say, being a thousand miles away, even though I created the system, being administered in a certain way, according to what the governor said. I couldn't comment on that. But as for your other question, had I read the legislation? I have not. But I ought to tell you why we set up the AEA. We had 99 county superintendents. Some of them didn't have anything to do. They were supposed to be supervising one-room schools. Well, we didn't have any one-room schools anymore. We had the local school districts who were not taking care of kids that had special needs. It could be physical. It could be mental. We needed to make sure that they had access on an equal basis with kids that didn't have problems. So we decided we needed a service organization for special kids. 
special needs kids rather. And that's why we set up the AAA. Now they've developed 50 years doing a lot of other things. I couldn't even tell you all the other things they're doing, but they do have a special place in my heart for maintaining the services for special needs kids. Next question, uh, Donald Trump. Um, does it concern you that the presumptive Republican nominee will be in a courtroom facing jail time during the height of the campaign? Grassley's answer, I'm going to wait and let the courts make that determination. Question, do you feel, as Trump has said he intends to argue to the Supreme Court, that his actions as president grant him immunity from prosecution? Grassley's, adds, Grassley's answer, we're going to have to wait and let the court speak to that. I couldn't presume what the court would say, but we'll have to abide by the court's decision because we are a nation based upon the rule of law. Next question. You've voiced your support for Ukraine against Russia, and I'd like to ask you for your comment on what the recent killing of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny means for the geopolitical conflict. Grassley's answer, I think it tells us all we need to know about Putin. Putin is doing exactly what any dictator would do. He doesn't want any political opposition. He said it himself, that the breakup of the Soviet Union was the biggest geopolitical disaster of the 20th century. He's made several speeches since then, saying he's going to reestablish a Russian empire, which would include Ukraine, and maybe even the Baltic states if he wanted to go back to 1945 and include Eastern Europe. We have to do everything we can to not give credibility to him, and no American should be giving encouragement to any communist. And then a question, what bills are you hoping to send to the president's desk? in the year 2024. Grassley's answer, I started on one in 2018 with the pharmaceutical benefit managers. Now they're the people between the manufacturers and the consumers, and they take a lot of money out of it. There are now four bills out of four different committees in the United States Senate. I hope we can get some movement on them. There's plenty of support for that in the Senate. And if Majority Leader Schumer doesn't schedule a vote, I hope we can get it in the final appropriations bill this fiscal year. And we have a couple of obituaries from Saturday's Globe Gazette. There were none in Sunday or Monday. Our first is Richard Dick Warner, born August 4th, 1940, weighing over only 2.5 pounds, passed away Sunday, February 11th at the Advent, Advent Health Orlando in Florida. Um, services will be Saturday, March 2nd, 11 a.m. at the Bonnerup Funeral and Cremation Services in Albert Lee, Minnesota. Next obituary is Julaine K. Damon, age 67 of Prior Lake, passed away February 18th. Visitation Wednesday, February 28th at the Ballard Sunder Funeral and Cremation in Prior Lake. Um, that will take place from 4 to 7. A celebration of life will be held uh, Thursday, February 29th at the Shepherd of the Lake Lutheran Church in Prior Lake, starting at 11. She'll be laid to rest at 1, Friday, March 1st, at the Osage Cemetery in Osage. Our next obituary is David Dean Miller, passed away peacefully in his sleep Thursday, February 15th. Um, services, celebration of life, 
Saturday, March 16, at the Methodist Church in Osage at 11 a.m., visitation 10 a.m. at that same church prior to the service. Timothy Paul Johnson of Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, age 75, passed away Wednesday, February 21st, at home. Funeral services, uh, they're taking place today. Um, Our next obituary, George Al Allen Albers, um, age 86, passed away Monday, February 19th, passed uh, peacefully surrounded by loved ones in his home in Georgia. Um, His service will take place this summer. There will be a family memorial in Clear Lake, Iowa. And we're a little past the halfway point of the reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and Fort Dodge Messenger for Monday, February 26, 2024. I'm your reader, Mary Francis, and you are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of folks with print disabilities. And you can learn more about us and listen to podcasts of most of our local programs on our website, iowaradioreading.org. And turning over to the Fort Dodge Messenger for today, first story, one person dead in Eagle Grove shooting. A fatal shooting was reported early Saturday morning in Eagle Grove, according to a media release from the Eagle Grove Police Department. At approximately 2.35 a.m. Saturday, the Eagle Grove Police Department received a 911 call in reference to a shooting incident that occurred in the 100 block of South Lucas Avenue. It resulted in the death of one male individual. Victim has not been identified and there is no threat to the public, according to the media release. The Eagle Grove Police Department requested the assistance of the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation in reference to this investigation, and the police department was assisted by the Wright County Sheriff's Office, Iowa State Patrol, Diversion of Criminal Investigation, Eagle Grove Ambulance Service, and a quick response vehicle, and the investigation is is ongoing. Our next story from the Fort Dodge Messenger, Legislators Meet Voters at Eggs and Issues event. It was a packed house at Iowa Central Community College College's Triton Cafe on Saturday as the Greater Fort Dodge Growth Alliance hosted another of its sessions of Eggs and Issues, bringing together local citizens with area legislators. Kelly Hindman moderated the session that included State Representatives Ann Meyer and Mike Sexton, as well as State Senators Jesse Green and Tim Kreienbrink. The four Republicans took questions for some 90 minutes. A few Webster County officials were also on hand, including Supervisor Mark Campbell and Sheriff Luke Fleener. School safety. School safety was the heart of the very first question posed on Saturday. The question came from a retired educator concerned that a bill working through the legislature allowing teachers to carry weapons in school may result in tragic consequences rather than enhance safety. Meyer was the first to tackle the question. She noted that she had discussed the issue in depth with Fleener, who gave her a perspective on the training that would be required and how it could impact school safety. Meyer shared her story of a retired police chief working in area public schools who was not allowed to carry a weapon on school grounds. 
that person would certainly be well qualified to carry and would be the logical first responder to help protect children in an emergency. But current law leaves this former officer unarmed on school grounds. Most of all, Meyer said, she is, quote, saddened by recent tragedies and that there has to be this discussion at all. I will support the bill, she concluded. Green, whose Senate district includes the Perry School District, gave his appreciation to first responders in Dallas County for their swift response to the shootings at the Perry Community School earlier this year. He credited radio communications staff for coordinating the response and getting the right people to the school in just seven minutes from the first report of shots fired. Having a trained person carrying a weapon within the school, according to Green, could shorten even that quick response time. We have to have someone in the school to fill that seven-minute gap, Green said. Kreienbrink agreed that a certified person could enhance school safety. The fact that would-be shooters know they will have a certain amount of time before law enforcement arrives can result in tragedy, he noted. A no-carry area is more attractive to a person who wants to disrupt because they know that no one is carrying, Kreienbrink said. This would be a good job for retired police or military to fill that role, he said. Uh, next issue, income and property tax issues. No political gathering would be complete without a few questions on taxes. With the state continuing its effort to roll back income tax rates that were nearly 9% in 2018 to approximately 3.9%, the question is what's next and what will the state do with continued surplus revenue? For Sexton, he said it's crucial to now move the focus to property taxes. Without lower property taxes, Sexton said people could face difficult choices, such as paying their property tax or completing needed repairs to maintain the value in their homes. Quote, I think we need to worry more about property taxes than the income tax, Sexton said. We are going to force people out of their homes. Kreienbrink address the surplus, stating that any funds left over should be returned to taxpayers. We want to put the money back to the people paying it, he said. Next issue, the AEAs. The legislators also heard questions on proposed changes to the state's nine AEAs. All of the legislators agreed that work remains to be done on the proposal and a final decision is not certain. We're a long way from the finish line on this bill, Kreienbrink said. The governor is still seeking her original plan. He sought to deflect concerns about potential job losses within the AEAs. This bill does not require any loss of jobs, Kreinbrink said. All of the money stays in that program. AEAs could choose to reduce staff, but it's not a mandate, as he described the proposal. Quote, we will not vote for anything that does not increase students for services. Students' services, I think. We are looking for the best outcome for students, he said. Meyer noted that the House bill would create a legislative tax force to take a closer look at the AEA system before any changes are implemented. I think they need legislative task force there, not tax force. Yes, the task force would determine what needs to change and what doesn't, Meyer said. I think the House bill slows down the process quite a bit. Special education funding would not be touched, according to Meyer. She championed the fact that it would bring salaries for CEOs of the AEAs more in line with that of school superintendents. 
This will bring more local control, Meyer said. I think the bill does what you all are asking for. Green also spoke in favor of more local control in regard to the required use of AEAs by local school districts. Quote, with the system, things cost more than they should, Green said. We need to empower school boards so that when they write a check, they know what they're getting. That's the type of oversight that we need. Next, they talked about distracted driving. Hands-free driving legislation tends to be a hot-button issue, despite deep support for it. Some legislators note that perhaps 85% of the public favors laws to crack down on distracted driving, but getting a bill passed can be elusive. Green, who at one time opposed any bill, said he's changed course. I've done a 180, he said. Once you see the data, I had been against hands-free driving legislation, but lumping this issue with the elimination of speed cameras may be the only way to get it to the governor's desk, Green said. Meyer said she understood, understands rather the opposition to speed cameras, but took a realistic approach to the matter. Quote, speed cameras in Fort Dodge pay for about four officers. If we get rid of them, that's an unfunded mandate, Meyer noted. Kreienbrink picked up on the issue of speed cameras and said, He'd recently discussed the two new cameras that became operational in Webster City last October. The first set of cameras, located on Highway 17 south of Webster City near the Boone River Bridge, the second set on Highway 20 just east of Highway 17. City officials had previously said the funds would be directed in four areas. Police, who are tasked with reviewing the camera images, public safety equipment, public safety operations, and general services. Kreienbrink said, DOT officials have told him that in the first three months of operation, the cameras at Webster City have brought in more than a million dollars in revenue. I know that hill and I've probably sped on it. It should be noted that the company that provided the cameras, Census Got So, receives a significant portion of those revenues with its agreement with the city of Webster City. Just, just be honest and say it's for revenue, Kreienbrink said. He also noted that there's support to require 50% of speed camera revenue that's derived on state highways to go to the state of Iowa. Both of the Webster City cameras are located on state highways. With 50% of that funding directed to the state, private companies may lose interest in installing them, legislators observed. Another idea, according to Kreienbrink, is to take speed camera revenue and direct it to groups such as volunteer fire departments. Those types of changes, according to Kreienbrink, would cause him to support hands-free driving legislation. Next issue, more work needed to combat drugs. As the morning wrapped up, Meyer offered her concerns about drug use and how it hurts communities. A simple online check for statistics should convince anyone, she said, as to the serious problem that North Central Iowa is confronting. Drugs are a major issue in Fort Dodge, Meyer said. Drugs lead to crime. Voicing her support for economic development, she said it's difficult to make real progress on building the strength of the community without addressing underlying drug problems. I think we need grants that specifically address drugs, Meyer said. With the day's forum hosted by the Greater Fort Dodge Growth Alliance, making the connection between drugs and growth was apt in a community that has suffered from violence in past years. From the workforce to home values, drugs and crime put a strain on a community's ability to grow, 
And Meyer said, it's time to work with renewed focus on the drug problem. The next forum is set for March 23rd. It's held regularly on the fourth Saturday of every month during the legislative session. That's typically the last Saturday of the month, but March has five Saturdays, so the schedule may look a little different than normal. And a local story from the 24th. Fort Dodge man lands back in federal prison for the fourth time. A man who violated the terms of his federal supervised release for the third time was sentenced to 30 months imprisonment. According to a statement from the United States Attorney's Office, Northern District of Iowa, Matthew Brockway, age 44, from Fort Dodge, received the prison term after admitting to multiple violations of his supervised release. These include several failures to report or submit to urinalysis, numerous uses of controlled substances, and failures to report as directed by the U.S. Probation Office. Brockway initially was sentenced to 180 months in imprisonment in 2010 for drug trafficking offenses and was first released to supervision February 24, 2021. Less than a year later, January 27, 2022, Brockway's supervised release was revoked for various supervised release violations, including new state law violations, and he was sentenced to federal prison for 24 months. After being released a second time, November 25, of 2022, mere months later, on January 9, of 2023, he was revoked again for various supervised release violations, including using drugs and he was sentenced to 11 months in prison. November 17, 2023, Brockway was released on his third supervision and has now been ordered to serve 30 months in federal prison. He was sentenced in Sioux City by U.S. District Court Chief Judge Leonard T. Strand. He's being held in the custody of the U.S. Marshal Service until he can be transported to a federal prison. Here's a story from the 23rd. Humlicek will face jury trial in April. Wolstock man pleaded not guilty to vehicular homicide. This is Dateline Webster City. Dustin Humlicek will face a jury when his case goes to trial in Hamilton County on April 9th. He's accused of causing a passenger's death in a one-vehicle crash in northern Webster City in 2023. Humlicek, age 40, has pleaded not guilty to the charges that he faces. He was charged earlier this month with homicide by vehicle slash operating while intoxicated and operating while under the influence, according to online court records, and was arrested by Hamilton County Sheriff's deputies. He faces a possible sentence of 20 up to 25 years in prison on the vehicular homicide charge. Kevin Baytoll of Webster City 48 years old when he died after being transported to a Des Moines hospital by air ambulance following a pip pickup crash at the intersection of North Des Moines Street in Webster City and 210th Street, which is locally known as the Aneta Woods Blacktop. The accident occurred September 2, 2023. Baytoll was a passenger in a 2009 Chevy Silverado being driven by Humlicek who was then 39 and from Webster City, the sheriff's office reported. Humlicek called 911 to report the accident. He told authorities that he was driving the north or the pickup 
northbound on Des Moines Street, and he did not stop for a stop sign at 210th Street. The pickup went into the north ditch, ended up in a residential yard. The call was logged at 3.03 a.m. Sunday, September 2nd, 2023. Quote, I was dispatched to a motor vehicle accident that occurred at 1751 210th Street, Webster City, said Deputy Zane Makita in the criminal complaint filed in Hamilton County. Quote, I arrived and observed multiple officers and emergency services rendering aid to a victim. The driver was sitting just outside the driver's door of the above vehicle. Webster City Officer Dan Watkins asked the defendant if he was driving, and in Officer Watkins' written statement, the defendant admitted to driving the vehicle. The defendant was loaded into an emergency vehicle and given aid. I went to the hospital where I waited for an EMS helicopter to arrive and take the defendant to Mercy One Hospital in Des Moines. While in the back of the emergency vehicle, I spoke to the defendant. I could smell the odor of alcohol, uh, an alcoholic beverage rather, coming from his person, and the defendant's eyes were bloodshot and watery. I read the defendant the implied consent advisory due to the defendant being involved in a motor vehicle accident while showing signs of impairment. I gave the defendant under... I... Uh, this sentence doesn't make any sense... I gave the defendant until the helicopter arrived to decide, must be I gave the defendant time until the helicopter arrival to decide to provide me with a blood or urine sample, but the defendant did not answer. This constituted a refusal for the withdrawal of a body specimen. It was reasonable to believe that due to the victim's extensive injuries, the victim likely sustained serious bodily injury or injuries resulting in death, unquote. Both men were transported to Des Moines, where Betal died later that day from his injuries. A search warrant was served on Humlachek at Mercy One Hospital in Des Moines that sought a blood sample. Quote, the passenger's injuries were due to the defendant's driving behavior, that resulted from a single vehicle accident, the search warrant stated, observed multiple alcoholic beverages partially drank inside the vehicle, unquote. Lab tests ultimately showed the presence of alcohol and marijuana metabolites in Homlicek's blood, according to a report from the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation Lab in Ankeny. The accident was investigated by the Hamilton County Sheriff's Office which said in a 2023 report that charges are pending. Homicide by vehicle or operating while intoxicated is a Class B felony. Operating while under the influence first offense is a serious misdemeanor. Humlicek also was reportedly driving with a suspended license. That's a, cla that's a simple misdemeanor. Um, a Class B felony is punishable by up to 25 years in prison. A serious misdemeanor is punishable by up to one year in prison and or a $2,560 fine, and a simple misdemeanor is punishable by up to 30 days in prison and or a fine of $850. And turning to today's obituaries, these are actually from the last few days, gather them up. First is Marlene F. King, age 89, of Fort Dodge, passed away February 19 at the Trinity Regional Medical Center. A celebration of life will be held at a later date. Next, we have 
Tina Zimet, that's Z-E-I-M-E-T. It doesn't show uh, age or date of death. It says memorial services will happen Saturday, March 2nd at the Algona E-Free Church. Visitation, 1 p.m. and a service at 3 p.m. Uh, Donna Capsule died February 28th of 2023. Visitation will take place uh, today, Monday the 26th from 6 to 8 p.m. at the Bowman Funeral Home. A memorial service will happen at 1 p.m. Uh, also at the funeral home. In addition, Kevin Capsule, who passed away February 14th, 2024, the visitation will be combined with Donna's. Janet Gunderson, uh, no date of death or anything, but it says services will be held at a later date with a private family graveside service in Rowland Township Cemetery in Calendar, Iowa. Now we have time for a letter to the editor. This is from Jim Kesterson of Fort Dodge. And Jim writes, Fort Dodge's latest case for eight is just what is needed for our community. Eight additional police officers is the number needed to strengthen the Fort Dodge Police Department, allowing for increased public safety. I personally question the funding source of the franchise fee and just where the money was going to if it was more than the amount needed for the eight additional police. What I discovered is that the fee will pay for eight police officers, and the rest will mostly be used to pay down city debt, besides some payment for Citizen Central and Carl King Band, which we're all, we are already funding. I'm willing to make this investment by increasing modestly my utility bill for the good of Fort Dodge. I also wish to thank the Fort Dodge Police Department and the Fort Dodge Fire Department for what I believe do exceptionally good work. We hope we don't need either department, but know when we do, we'll get real professionals to help us in our time of need. And that letter submitted by Jim Kesterson of Fort Dodge. And that's all the time we have today to read the Fort Dodge Messenger and the Mason City Globe Gazette. I'm your reader, Mary Francis. Have a great day. Thank you.